Good Friday morning. Welcome to Bunny Movers. I'm Carl Quintanillo with Sarah Eisen live on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Today, the White House's first response to this morning's blowout jobs report. CEA Chair Jared Bernstein is going to join us from Washington. Meta surging, passing NVIDIA as the best performing stock in the S&P and the NASDAQ 100 this year. We're going to take a look at the future of big tech dividends. Plus the FBI warning of Chinese hackers wreaking havoc on critical U.S. infrastructure. The CEO of cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike will join us with that stock up 18 percent for the year. Topping the tape for us this morning, the market reaction to the jobs number. The U.S. Academy, uh, economy adding 353,000 jobs in January. That was way more than expected. Unemployment rate holding steady at 3.7 percent. Right now, stocks taking it pretty well, although the Nasdaq and the S&P's rise is largely Meta and Amazon. Let's bring in CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli. And here's my setup question sure. for you. The, mar- the investors are going to have to decide whether they prefer a very strong economy and jobs number or imminent rate cuts. And it feels like the bond market certainly would prefer the rate cuts. The bond market would always prefer the rate (laughs) cuts. They don't want to necessarily have to deal with a reheating economy uh, necessarily. I do think that in general, the markets are reserving judgment on this number. It's unequivocally stronger than expected. The question is whether this is somehow a new run rate, whether there are extenuating factors in the 353,000 net new jobs, Um, unemployment rate the same, work week down. So 4%, 403 on the 10-year Treasury, it's below the week's highs, right? We were up around 415 at some point on a blip. So I think at this point, if you think this data is a pure head fake, and in fact the economy is really going to start to struggle, and therefore the Fed's going to be late with rate cuts, then good news is bad news, right? Because if the good news is just a temporary sugar high and the Fed's kind of asleep while we really weaken, then it's a problem. That's not what you think, is it? No, no, it's not. That's not what the market thinks, is it? That's right, it's not. That's why the market's hanging in there, is my argument. So the average stock, the median stock in the S&P is flat on the year. It's up 30% from the lows. It's still not leading. You know, obviously the big stocks are, or the big tech stocks are still leading. But I do think we can live with waiting for the first Fed rate cut if it's because of economic resilience. If it's because inflation starts to really heat up again, then I think you have a a more serious gut check for the broader market. This was uh, Michael Hartnett's point this morning, says pals with Paper Tiger, market doesn't care if it's March or May, but if the trend becomes either no cuts or fewer cuts, or if you're getting cuts for the wrong reason, that's where the risk is. I think that's fair. And maybe it's June. I mean, May, you know, it's not a meeting that has the, 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 the collective outlook for the Fed. Um, so I do think it's OK. If the next move is lower, uh, it's a matter of when, not if. And then you have the why question. Then I think you're probably OK. Now, that doesn't mean at 20 times earnings after we've had this big run, there's a good bit of optimism, I think, among investors that probably has to be burned off at some point, you know, and have a little bit of a of a reset or, or a little pullback. That's fine. But that to me isn't a game over for the economy type question because the Fed is going to stay too tight too long. And I continue on this on this theme to point to kind of the mixed outlook we're getting from companies Definitely mixed. and mixed commentary on the consumer. I mean, we talked to Royal Caribbean. Things couldn't be better. But then I played Clorox today, and it's a very cautious, value-seeking consumer. Oh, and you can look at some of the durable goods makers, right? The Whirlpools. That's very much in contrast with Visa and American Express saying everyone's spending. It's fine. So I do think it's a a bit of a dissonant um, backdrop. You also saw how many months of weak manufacturing, and then all of a sudden, 
ISM manufacturing starts to firm up a little bit. The price is paying and so yeah. the rolling recession kind of story still has some credence on that on that basis. Mike, don't go too far. Uh, we're going to talk in a bit. Mike Santoli, uh, for more on the jobs number and for what it means for the Fed going forward, let's bring in one of our favorites, Charles Schwab, chief investment strategist, Lizanne Saunders. Lizanne, happy Friday. Good to see you. Happy Friday. Good to see you, too. Happy um, Red Day. Uh, yes, exactly. We're all on board. Um, so we talked with Jan Hatzius about the jobs number. He agreed there's a lot in there, kind of muddy and cloudy. Does that explain sort of the, the at least the bond market's reaction today? Um, well, I, I think the bond market reaction is obviously uh, further to the point of the Fed probably not offering a cut in March, which I think they made that pretty clear earlier this week. Whether this cemented it, maybe it's a little bit too soon to tell. But I, I, I think what's happening is that we, we can't look at sort of the market in a monolithic way anymore. And I think expectations around Fed policy moves in yields seem to be having, probably rightly so, a disproportionate impact down the cap spectrum. It, you even see it in a day like today. We know why the NASDAQ is up, given the uh, the high flyers associated with, with earnings. But I think that those moves in yields and expectations around Fed policy are now having a, a bigger impact down the cap spectrum in an index like the Russell 2000 because it's still got a large share of zombie companies. You are facing the prospect of rates staying elevated a little bit longer, and, and that hits right to those zombie companies that are now starting to face a maturity wall. So right. a little bit more differentiation in terms of what works and what's it, what doesn't, even as it relates to Fed policy. Would, would you extend that argument to what's happening with some of these regional banks? Yeah, I, I think that with with the commercial real estate problems, yes, we know it's concentrated in the small and regional banks. We know that there was some idiosyncratic issues associated with New York Community Bank as of what happened when they bought the signature assets in terms of elevating them into a different tier from a regulatory perspective. But I think looking forward, I, I still think that this commercial real estate problem is very much in the, through the windshield, not the rearview mirror. But it, it, there's there's different maturity schedules, there's different exposures within commercial real estate. It's more of a slow motion train wreck or a, or a simmering crisis over time as opposed to sort of a Lehman-esque problem where there's going to be some announcement and the bottom uh, falls out. But, but as an analyst or as a stock picker, if you're looking for opportunities or what to avoid in the small and regional banks, you've you got you to gotta operate with your fine tooth comb. Do you think it affects the, the big banks? Because there's been, there's been more love for that sector lately. Well, if you look at the, the largest banks, their exposure is low single digits to commercial real estate, where it's more like a third of the exposure to commercial real estate is down on those small and regional banks. This, of course, leaves the, aside what the exposure is within the shadow banking uh, system. The, the opacity there means we, we don't know that with any kind of precision. You know, up until the New York Community Bank news, you had all of the stocks within the financial sector in uptrends. Now, much as I said with regard to the broader market, I, I think in this environment of, of low realized correlations and wider dispersion, even among the mega cap uh, names and wider dispersion, even among the Magnificent Seven, I think the same thing applies to analysis within sectors. And certainly a big differentiation point is large versus small as it relates to CRE exposure. Lizanne, we talked about some of the commentary come out of Q4 earnings. You know, it hasn't been stellar, but I wonder how you couple that with 
a CapEx war among the mega cap tech giants, uh, consumer expectations three year high, Walmart adding 150 stores in five years. I mean, is, if things are not great, why would so many large entities be willing to invest so much in the U.S.? Well, I think that investment case is actually one of the positive components of the economic story beyond just the very short term. And a lot of it has to do with the necessity around trying to protect profit margins and find avenues for growth. I think this earnings season is less about things like the beat rate, but more about not just near-term protection of profit margins, but what is sort of the long-term investment case to sort of maintain dominance in, in It's more of a forward-looking component to earnings season that matters more than just what was the report for the fourth quarter. Mm -hmm. Lizanne, uh, such an eventful day. Um, We'll keep it short today, but look forward to talking again soon. Have a good weekend. You too. Lizanne Saunders. By the way, we're all wearing red for American heart health, um, right, for women's health to prevent strokes and heart disease. American Heart Association, Red Day. The uh, earnings mover of the morning is Meta, of course, announcing its first ever dividend following a 25% jump in revenue on the year. The stock is surging. It's now passing NVIDIA as the top performing S&P stock of the year. It's up more than 20%. Let's bring in CNBC senior tech and media correspondent Julia Borston. What a number, what a reaction, Julia. Yeah, and quite a reaction to Meta's first ever dividend. Meta's initiation of a 50 cent quarterly dividend is a sign of the company's maturation. Along with a $50 billion share buyback, this is a testament to Meta's strong cash flow and profitability. Now, the outcome of Meta's year of efficiency and a lean approach that Zuckerberg says will continue is all sort of playing out here. Now, this puts Meta's dividend ahead of NVIDIA's and in line with Apple's on a percentage basis. The consensus from analysts is that this move to add a dividend will bring in a new class of investors into the stock. Mizuho writing, quote, the new dividend policy is a welcome surprise given opportunity to add a new base of income-based investors. Management Iterated, reiterated that the introduction of a dividend provides a more balanced capital return program and more flexibility in future capital returns. And I have to point out, Meta turns 20 years old on Sunday, so this could be seen as sort of rite of passage as Meta becomes part of the tech establishment. Guys? What, what was the big surprise? Because the analysts all liked this, this stock and this story going in. Well, look, in addition to the dividend piece, I think it's really important to look, if we can look at over the past three years or so, the decline that Meta saw in its shares a couple of years ago, and then the really dramatic rise in shares we've seen over the past 12 months. To me, what that narrative is, the dip and then the return, this massive rebound, is about Meta finding its identity. There was a lot of concern that this company transitioning to be about the metaverse, no one really understood what that meant or how it was going to pay off. Now we have the fact that these these headsets that Meta has been selling have now surpassed a billion dollars in revenue and they have a plan to integrate AI into the metaverse. The metaverse is not just about virtual worlds. It's about the idea that they're also having these virtual assistants that you can access through voice commands, whether it's your Ray-Ban glasses um, or, or through these Quest headsets. And one thing I have to point out here that the analysts have been talking about is that Mark Zuckerberg has shown how he's been able to use AI in order to make the ads more effective. But he also talked a lot about how they're going to use AI um, to generate additional revenue down the line. Um, CFO Susan Lee said, we're not going to see generative AI 
um, specifically add to revenue this year, but we do expect it to add revenue um, down the line. So yeah. really a lot of promise here in this, not just being a metaverse company, but an AI company. And they talk so much about the data. They already have hundreds of billions of shared images, tens of billions of videos. All that said, uh, Julia, $16 billion in losses at Reality Labs, and now less MAU data. That's what some of the doubters are pointing to today. Yeah, I mean, the company announced it's no longer going to be giving daily active or monthly active users for Facebook, its flagship app, instead focusing on metrics like the number of people in its family of apps or the, the ways that they're increasing their ad engagement, the number of ads or ad pricing. So yeah, that was a little bit of a concern, but um, at the end of the day, the numbers that they're gonna be able to show now are gonna continue to grow. There is some concern that the Facebook flagship app really is saturated in terms of these different markets. I mean, it was a big surprise that this quarter, um, Facebook added 2 million users in the U.S. and Canada. For a while, we were seeing that number decline. Um, so, yeah, they're not going to be as transparent, but as they shift um, into being more of an AI company, we'll see the different ways that yields dividends as well. No pun intended. Definitely one of the best ever stock performances today, assuming these levels hold. Uh, Julia, thanks. Uh, Julia Borston on Meta. Let's stick with big tech and talk about Apple delivering a beat to the top of the bottom line in fiscal Q1. Shares did fall earlier, clawing back some gains, though, as the company has this 13 percent decline in China. Suggests we'll see some weaker iPhone sales in the current quarter. Joining us on that is Bernstein's Tony Saganaki, who, by the way, titles his report, Another Year of Little to No Growth, AI to the Rescue question mark, Tony, and you point out that Cook made some allusions to some of this, but not overtly, right? Uh, good morning, Carl. Yes, yeah, so um, that certainly uh, piqued investors' interest about what might Apple do in AI going forward, and CEO Tim Cook um, repeatedly mentioned the company's commitment to investment, hinted at an announcement potentially later this year, and so there's significant speculation about what could Apple do, and more importantly, um, could that have a material impact on you know, revenue and profitability going forward? He did say, I think, uh, later this year. Uh, do you have any guesses as to how you're going to start to fold this into your model? Um, look, I think there's always a, a general question about whether Apple introduces a new service for ecosystem enhancement purposes or for revenue. So, for example, when FaceTime as a service was introduced a apple didn't charge for it per se but it was it enhanced the ecosystem made the product more attractive intrinsically by contrast when they've introduced services like apple tv plus uh, or apple music those have generated revenue right from the start i think our belief is that apple may try and incorporate ai into its next version of its phone some kind of onboard ai and to make it sufficiently compelling that it would implore people to upgrade to the next generation phone. Perhaps it doesn't work well or requires a richer hardware configuration. And so if it was an attractive, had attractive capabilities, um, that could be a reason to stimulate upgrades, which is very important to Apple. So I, I, I think there is a real question whether, you know, A, what does Apple do with AI? And then if it does do something with AI, will it be ecosystem enhancing and available to all phones? Or will it be something that Apple is, is reserving for its most current phones and trying to implore people to upgrade to them? 
Well, that's a to-be-continued story. More, more immediate future questions, Tony, center around China, which the revenue is down double digits, and the, the March guide. And I'm wondering how that factors into your outlook and whether any of it was surprising. Um, so I think China, the magnitude of China and the magnitude of the guide were both generally surprising to investors. So China being down 13% when most emerging markets are growing double digits raises questions. I think Apple is seeing incremental competition. Uh, I do think that the Chinese consumer and economy is a little weaker. But the big unknown question is whether there's sort of incremental geopolitical um, tension that is impacting sales of Apple devices. There have been reports that government agencies are prohibiting Apple devices. And it's difficult to really gauge whether that's having a material impact. And I think, I think that's a really important question. In terms of the guide down, I think um, many people were simply mismodeling Apple's guiding. It's a weak cycle. There's no doubt about it. And Apple is guiding to relatively normal seasonal growth from Q1 to Q2. Uh, I think um, many were mismodeling that. And, and hence, this appeared to be a surprise. But the punchline is it's a weak cycle, and we're seeing that manifested more on a year-over-year -year basis in Q2 than in Q1. Tony, I don't see a lot of discussion, up high at least, in, in Vision, Vision Pro in your report. Um, are you just waiting for more uh, to chew on until you get more declarative? Um, well, I, I think our take is that it's not going to be material to Apple's financials this year. Um, even if it's relatively well received, you know the, the the data out of Asia suggesting that Apple might make five hundred thousand to a million devices if they were to sell out that higher number, it might add one percent or a little less than one percent to revenue growth. So for now, Vision Pro is is not a needle mover. It has you know a very high price point starting at thirty five hundred dollars. Um, and it's still early in its development. It's a little bit like the Gordon Gecko uh, smartphone, you know, circa 1975. It's pretty big. It's pretty heavy, and um, it's going to take some time to uh, to become uh, more of a mass market product. <laughs> that, that's a good reference. Although I did think it was interesting that Apple touted the the enterprise use of the Vision Pro. You know, we're wondering who's going to pay 3,500. Well. Companies and they mentioned Nike, SAP, Stryker, using it for employees, using it for customers, using it as a productivity enhancement. I thought that was sort of interesting. It, it doesn't it doesn't change your view of how well it sells. No, I, I don't think it does because we we have a reasonably good sense of the number of units that are going to be produced. Um, and and look, Microsoft Hololens has principally been a corporate device and. It's also high priced and has pretty modest volumes. Um, you know, uh, uh, Oculus has been more of a consumer device at a much lower price point. So um, there will certainly be use cases at corporate, but uh, no, we'd be, we'd be surprised if this was a needle mover for Apple this year. Really quick, it reminds me of the time that they talked first about iPad being an enterprise tool for pilots and cutting weight. Have you had a chance to try it, Tony? I have not, and I'm looking forward to going down to the store and trying it out. Yeah, right, we, we can't wait to get your reflections as well. Uh, everybody's going to have an opinion and a view of how it's going to work out. It's good to see you. Thanks for the help today. Uh, Tony Saganaki on Apple, which, by the way, just uh, ticked positive a moment ago.
Still to come, the White House's first reaction to the jobs number. CEA Chair Jared Bernstein is with us. Manufacturing a big part of that print, but the industry still facing a shortage of skilled labor. Our Kate Rogers is in California looking at that this morning. Morning, Kate. Good morning, Carl. The manufacturing sector adding 23,000 jobs last month. Many more workers are going to be needed in modern manufacturing facilities, just like this one in the years to come. More coming up after the break. Welcome back. Well, it's a commodity we don't often talk about, but uranium is seeing some pretty big moves recently. In fact, hitting a 16-year high. Our Pippa Stevens has more on that. Pippa, why is it moving? Well, Sarah, this all comes back to renewed global interest in nuclear power, which is pushing the price of uranium back over $100. Demand growth is outpacing new supply, with Kazatomprom, the world's largest miner, saying this week it will fall short of its production goals. Amid this momentum, uranium spot prices have more than doubled over the last year, according to UXC. Now, lithium and uranium might seem to have a lot in common. Both commodities are critical to the energy transition, begging the question of whether uranium will mimic lithium's steep fall, with those prices down 80 percent in a year. But there are actually some key differences here. First of all, uranium demand is inelastic. Utilities have to purchase it, and nuclear supply is roughly 20% of U.S. electricity. Sprout Asset Management's John Champaglia adding that lithium is a newer market, meaning it's more prone to volatile supply disruptions as the industry scales. And a new uranium mine can also take a decade to get up and running due to permits and capital expenses, meaning the typical commodity market phenomenon of high prices driving new supply might not happen this time around. Carl? Pippa, thanks. Uh, Pippa Stevens this morning. In the meantime, Dow trying to shave some losses down 60. Let's get a news update with Silvana Hanau. Hi, Silvana. Hey, Carl. Good morning to you. The U.S. is reportedly strengthening defenses around a base in Jordan as it readies a response to a drone attack there on Sunday by Iran-backed militants. Three U.S. troops died in the strike. President Biden will be on hand during today's dignified transfer of their remains, even as the U.S. pledges retaliation for the strike. Some Iran-backed factions vowed today they would continue to attack U.S. forces in the region. Three people died in a small plane crash into a Clearwater, Florida mobile home park Thursday night. The FAA says the victims include one person in the aircraft and two on the ground. At least three nearby homes were damaged by the ensuing fire. And a set of six sneakers worn by Michael Jordan just sold for $8 million at a New York auction. Sotheby's estimated they would go for between $7 and $10 million. It's a new record for game-worn sneakers and the second highest auction sale of Michael Jordan's sports memorabilia. The NBA legend wore each of the Air Jordans in the set during title-clinching games, Sarah. Pretty cool. And they were sold as individual sneakers, yes. not pairs. Because he's, he had, I, I think, know. given them away already. <laughs> Silvana, thank you. Yes. Silvana now. Well, this week, the FBI director warned Chinese hackers are planning to, quote, wreak havoc on U.S. infrastructure. CrowdStrike CEO George Kurtz joins us on U.S. cyber defense next. Watching NYCB today, a 6.5% uh, jump here after hitting a 24-year low yesterday. Concerns about commercial property, of course, weighing on the sector this week with the KRE down 7% week to date. We're back in two. FBI Director Christopher Wray warning Congress this week that, quote, China's hackers are positioning on American infrastructure in preparation to wreak havoc and cause real-world harm. That's right after the U.S. government disrupted a large botnet of malware installed by the Chinese government 
on U.S. routers. And in the past month, we've seen a big run-up in cybersecurity stocks, including names like CrowdStrike and Palo Alto. Here to discuss is CrowdStrike CEO George Kurtz. George, welcome. What do you make of this warning from the FBI director wreaking havoc on U.S. infrastructure? Well, I think what we're seeing is the serious nature of this, uh, to have the FBI come out and actually warn against this particular threat, uh, I think um, shows the level of capability that China has. And I think the level of concern the U.S. government actually has uh, in this pre-preparation phase uh, before potential invasion of Taiwan. And that's really what this is all about. And that's the level of concern that we're seeing here. So when we think U.S. critical infrastructure, we think what, water, gas, electric, how vulnerable are we? Well, this is one of the things that um, we've seen over many years is that critical infrastructure, certainly in the U.S., most of it is not owned by the U.S. government. And it has and continues to be one of the areas of concern and vulnerability. When you look at the level of security in some of the organizations, um, there's certain standards that they're trying to adhere to, but many of these systems, these operational technologies, OT, are old, antiquated, and very difficult to upgrade. So they become even more vulnerable to attack and disruption by the likes of what we call Vanguard Panda, the Chinese government. So who do you think this message was for from the FBI director? And who needs to heed it? In general, what I would say is critical infrastructure needs to heed this, but cybersecurity is more than just critical infrastructure. And I think this warning is a public warning, um, given what we're seeing in this operational preparation of the environment, OPE. This is really the pre-positioning phase before something happens. And as we know, China has been very patient, but they have made it clear that Taiwan is of interest to them. So I think what we're seeing here is the U.S. government saying, hey, we've got a problem here critical infrastructure and the private sector need to come together to be able to identify and disrupt the Chinese government from taking these pre-positioned activities before something happens in the future. Do you have a view, George? I mean, we talk about the different silos of risk regarding water treatment and the grid and natural gas and oil production. Do you, do you think that there's any asymmetry within that? Is one more at risk than the other? You have to step back and you have to look at really what is the intention here, and it's to disrupt the logistics. So if Taiwan, if the U.S. was to be drawn into a, a war with Taiwan, we've spent billions and billions of dollars to have the capabilities to be able to engage. If those capabilities disrupted from a logistical perspective, the oil, the gas, the ammunition, if it can't get to where it needs to be, everything today is run on the network. And if we don't have those capabilities, what better way to disrupt without actually even sending a, a missile somewhere, right? If you engage in a kinetic-type uh, warfare, obviously you know who it is, and that increases the escalation between the two countries. But if you can hide behind an anonymous, anonymous botnet like the KV botnet, which was actually disrupted, it, there's some level of, of, of shielding that takes place where it's not, not really going to engage the U.S. To, to be drawn into something because of the anonymity. Is it right. China? Is it not? It's hard to prove. But from a cyber perspective, we know they've been involved in these sort of activities. It's almost it's, it's like a, a proxy of a proxy war, uh, which obviously makes the response uh, a lot more difficult to, to figure out. Absolutely. And that's why cyber has been such an effective tool, not only for network reconnaissance, for data theft. We've talked about on your show many times. 
the Chinese and stealing this data, but the ability to actually disrupt and de degrade capabilities. Um, it's the perfect cyber weapon uh, to be able to do that. So what, how, how are you, how are you inserting yourself in this? Is it, is it pitches to infrastructure companies, to the government, to the to private sector companies in, in anticipation of increased activity from the Chinese? I would say it's two things. We've been involved in the public-private partnership for many years, uh, and in particular around this threat. We've tracked Vanguard Pandas since 2020, and we've actually been able to uh, disrupt some of their uh, activities in customers of ours. So this is something that, from an intelligence perspective, uh, the public and the, the private uh, companies need to come together with the government to be able to share this intelligence and to be able to um, equip and arm our critical infrastructure and, and make sure that they have a level of resiliency to be able to stand up to these attacks. So it's part of what yeah. we do every day at CrowdStrike. We've seen it, we've disrupted it, we've detected it, and that's what we're gonna to continue to focus on from a customer perspective. And you mentioned the botnet. We talked about Eamon Javers, who covers this for us, did a lot of reporting on this, and he was explaining that, you know, getting into home routers across the country. What, what Have you learned about what the Chinese were trying to accomplish here? Sure. So when you look at these home routers and, and many other types of equipment like this, uh, and this is something Director Easterly and I have talked about for, for many years, is that these types of equipment, um, they tend to age out. At some point, they're just not worth upgrading from the, the manufacturer's perspective. So the software gets old, it's not upgraded, it's vulnerable, and it's the perfect tool and um, uh, operating system to be able to have the Chinese attack. They can hide in the background, they can easily get into these routers, and they can commandeer them for this anonymous botnet. So essentially what was done here was this botnet was, was uh, interrupted, but it doesn't mean that the Chinese are going to go away. They're going to find other capabilities and other ways to anonymize their attacks. Got it. Totally, totally, totally switching gears, George. As a, as a big Mercedes backer, are you going to go to Ferrari with Lewis Hamilton? Hey, look, we, we're going to wish <laughs> Lewis Hamilton well. I know you saw, uh, you had Total Wolf on. We had Toto. Uh, yeah, yeah, we, we chatted uh, as well because we're obviously a, a key partner of the team. Uh, Lewis has been a, a massive part of uh, Mercedes' success. Um, you know, I wished him well, and uh, certainly, you know, from a Mercedes perspective, uh, we're all in. But uh, of course, on a personal level, I only wish Lewis Hamilton the best. Mm -hmm. Sort of interesting to follow the sponsorship business side of this as well. George, thank you very much, as always. Thank you. Thank you. George Kurtz. By the way, CrowdStrike was once a CNBC Disruptor 50 company, and we are now accepting nominations for the 12th annual list of private venture-backed companies. To learn more, you can scan the QR code right there on your screen or go to cnbc.com slash disruptors. Coming up next, CEA Chair Jared Bernstein with the White House reaction to the jobs number. Stay with us. Let's get back to the jobs number. Manufacturing jobs openings hit a three-month high in December at more than 600,000. As investments continue to be made in U.S. manufacturing, the industry faces a long-standing issue. It needs more workers. And the message from many companies that are hiring, modern manufacturing is high-tech, and there are opportunities abound. Our Kate Rogers is in Brisbane, California, with a lot more. Morning, Kate. 
Good morning, Carl. We're here at Ample's manufacturing facility. They're looking to double their manufacturing footprint over the course of the next year from 100 workers to 200 here in the Bay as the company leans into partnerships with Stellantis, Daimler, and Uber. It manufactures battery packs for EV swapping, and it recently launched an apprenticeship program as a result of the Inflation Reduction Act. The company needs skilled workers, and it's taking on that training itself. As we started needing to really ramp up and scale very quickly, that just got more and more challenging. So to a great degree, kind of, we see the writing on the wall. To the degree where right now we assume as we're bringing people that we're gonna, we are going to be doing some, some level of training. Now, Ample is just one of many U.S. manufacturers seeking to hire and upskill its workforce. The Manufacturing Institute projects that by 2030, manufacturers will need to fill 4 million jobs, and more than half could go unfilled if modern manufacturing careers aren't pursued. The message, this isn't your grandfather's manufacturing job. The biggest misperception about manufacturing is what modern manufacturing really looks like. People just don't know. They think that it's, you know, um, antiquated or that you come in and you do one job. They don't know that man modern manufacturing today is all about technology. Now, expect manufacturing positions to continue to grow as a result of increased construction manufacturing investments hitting around $213 billion in December. That's in part as a result of federal funding for the CHIPS Act, the IRA, and the infrastructure law. But as we know and as we discussed last month in Help Wanted, both construction and manufacturing do have these long-standing skilled worker gaps. So companies are really looking to hire, attract, and retain those workers, guys. Back over to you. I wonder, Kate, how the advancement of AI will factor in here, whether it makes them even more productive or could threaten jobs. So, Sarah, it's so interesting. Ample CEO told us that essentially because of AI, because of robotics, the job is becoming more sophisticated and for workers can be more intellectually stimulating and fulfilling. But aside from just the AI component on the manufacturing floors, Deloitte had a big study out talking about manufacturers using AI to find the right workers with the right skill sets to put them in these jobs. So it's also being used as a recruiting tool for manufacturers to, to try and fill this skilled labor shortage. Kate Rogers, thank you very much. Really interesting focus there on manufacturing. Let's stay on the jobs market. Total non-farm payrolls posting a massive beat in January. 353,000 jobs added. December's number also revised up to 333,000 from 216. Joining us now first on CNBC is the White House Council of Economic Advisors Chairman Jared Bernstein. Jared, you've got to be very thrilled with these, with these headline numbers. Well, we're thrilled on behalf of uh, American working uh, families. You know, President Biden's theory of the case is that if uh, working Americans are going to get a fair share of this uh, pie that they're helping to bake, we've got to have a tight labor market. And in fact, we've had the unemployment rate below 4%. It was 3.7 in January. It's now been below 4% for two years running, uh, along with uh, really outstanding job growth, low unemployment, and now wages beating prices. Uh, this is good news for uh, working families. Although some are saying that the, the wage gains were seen after the hours worked were fewer. Fewer, fewer hours in the work week, and, and that sort of balances that out. And just in terms of the good news there, why do yeah, you think th we saw that? I think that's uh, uh, probably in the mix. Um, if you kind of take out the hours effect, you still have 
uh, a pretty strong wage number, but it probably does come down a tenth or two uh, if you look at the month over month. But look, it's not just this report. If you look at the uh, employment cost index, which we know the Fed looks at carefully, uh, that's been uh, beating prices uh, reliably so now. And in fact, over the last 10 months, this is, this is a trend, not a blip. Uh, we've had wages beating prices. It's one of the reasons why consumer spending has consistently outperformed and why we had yet another uh, expectation-busting report uh, in Q4 GDP. So the economy continues to defy expectations in part because there's a very strong tailwind from this job market uh, helping uh, the American consumer. On the downside, though, the Fed is not yet fully confident that inflation is going to go back to target to cut interest rates, which would help preserve this, this strong economy. I mean, I know you don't want to get into Fed policy, but do you have questions about whether inflation can go all the way back down to normal and to target with the economy running hot and jobs like this? Well, it's obviously something that we watch very carefully. From our perspective, easing prices, uh, both in terms of uh, a lower inflation uh, which, um, as you well know, uh, at least for the last six months, uh, both headline and core PCE have been running about 2%. Uh, so that's uh, uh, obviously very good to see, both for uh, easing pressures and, and from the Fed's perspective. But we're also focused on lowering costs. The president will say every time he talks about this that the many prices are still too high from the perspective of uh, American uh, households. Uh, therefore, we're going to continue to push to lower prescription drug costs to make sure that that $35 for insulin stays the law of the land against those who would repeal that very measure and, and raise costs in that sector. But whether it's milk, eggs, used cars, airfares, we've actually seen cost reductions in uh, some key uh, consumer areas. Although this Times piece yesterday, Jared, about grocers uh, quoting the president in South Carolina saying we're tired of being played for suckers. I mean, what can you do on, on food at home other than Jawbone, Kroger and Walmart and Target? Well, uh, you know, if, if I Jawbone, that's one thing. If uh, the leader of the free world Jawbones, that's another. And, and <laughs> President, uh, President Biden can be pretty persuasive uh, when he uh, comes at uh, uh, firms that aren't passing savings along to consumers. Look, we understand that uh, uh, companies will uh, flex pricing power time and again. But if you're some, if, if you're a company that's uh, whose input costs have come down significantly, and you're not passing those costs along to consumers, we're certainly seeing that in elevated grocery margins. And the president has called that out. He will continue to do so. What are you seeing from the U.S. consumer? It's, it's the, the economic data isn't all that bad, but the messages we're getting from companies, I think, is less strong. Warnings on consumer spending, value-oriented consumers, specifically at the, the lower income spectrum. What's your expectation for this year? Well, I think that there is a, a pretty simple, I guess I'd call it a close shave with Occam's razor here, which is that we have a 70% consumer spending economy. Uh, if you go to Europe, I think that's like 55%. I think China, it's more like 45%. Again, if we have a job market that this, that's this solid, you know, you just cited the revisions to the earlier months. I tried to do the math in my head, so I hope this is right. Uh, if, you, if you just sum up job gains in December and January, 686,000, okay? Again, the unemployment rate consistently below 4%. With that kind of tailwind behind consumers and prices easing, 
Uh, I'm confident that uh, consumer spending should stay solid. Now, of course, we're going to watch every uh, negative indicator that comes our way. Uh, but thus far, uh, this, um, this dynamic, tight labor markets, easing inflationary prices, rising real wages, it's not only showing up in good consumer spending, we're seeing it show up in strong consumer sentiment, okay? This morning, University of Michigan reported a surge, that's their word, not mine, a surge in consumer sentiment, up 13% in January. So people are starting to feel these results we're talking about. Yeah, we, uh, we watched you, Misha, this morning. Pretty interesting. Uh, all that said, um, I do wonder, the expanded child tax credit is being being framed as some kind of check that gets mailed out, Jared, and I wonder how much political risk it faces in the days ahead. Well, uh, the president has been very clear that uh, he's a, a big supporter of the work that we've done on the child tax credit, lowering child poverty by half in the uh, plan that was in the uh, rescue plan. Uh, he's been supportive of this uh, of this tax deal, and and, and if this uh, if this uh, expansion of the child tax credit gets to his desk, he said he'd sign it. I mean, I just wonder, though, you know, you're not getting you don't get credit for the good numbers because the narrative is the debt numbers continue to go up. Even in the strong economy, we have open borders with people coming in. All of that is going to weigh on the social safety net and the economy of this country. And an well, wait a year. second. Um, hold on a second, Sarah. You know, this tax uh, uh, bill is paid for. Uh, it's paid for uh, by um, taking back a credit that, uh, you know, this employer retention credit is going to. Uh, pay, it, it, that, that's the offset for this tax bill. So it, it, it uh, was scored as, uh, as not uh, increasing the deficit. So that's, that's a, good, uh, a good indicator there. But look, if you want to talk about whether these uh, numbers we're talking about, whether these trends we're talking about are reaching the American consumer, we now have the co Consumer Confidence Survey and the UMICH survey both showing a few months of quite strong gains. Now, a few months is not an established mm -hmm. new trend yet. Uh, but it does look to us like the benefits of a tight job market, which we see very strongly today, easing inflation, rising real pay, is uh, finally reaching uh, families and they're, they're, feeling, uh, they're feeling it. Jared Bernstein, thank you for weighing in. Thank you. Appreciate it on, on jobs and the economy from the White House. Still to come this morning, the mega caps is Meta's dividend, just the beginning of a big cap tech returning some cash to shareholders. Tech Check is going to look into that after the break. Talked a lot about Meta today, surprising the street with its first ever dividend. Could this be a sign of mega caps maturing and which others might be next? That's the focus of today's Tech Check with Deirdre Bosa. Happy Friday, Dee. Hey, happy Friday, Carl. Well, you can look at Meta's dividend as part of a broader shift among tech over the last few years. It used to be that high growth tech companies, they invested every dollar of profit back into the business to develop the next generation of innovation. But higher interest rates and the push for profitability, that has led to more discipline, better cash flow, larger reserves, i.e. more money available to return to investors. So it got us thinking, could Meta Surprise Dividend pressure Google and Amazon to do the same? Here's the state of capital returns among the big six. Apple and Microsoft, they've had robust programs for years, but they've also been around the longest, and the, so they have more mature businesses. 
Meta is the youngest of the bunch here, and that is partly why its dividend was such a surprise. Now, Amazon has been around for nearly 30 years, yet it doesn't have any capital return program, but it didn't start posting consistent profits until 2015, when its high-margin AWS cloud computing unit started making up for narrow margins in e-commerce. Even then, it continued putting those profits back into the company, like doubling its logistics footprint over the pandemic. This quarter, though, everything seemed to start working for Amazon. Operating income soared, way better e-commerce margins, and interest income, that was kind of the cherry on top, an added benefit of higher yields on its growing cash pile, and that is a benefit among all the mega caps that have reserves in the tens or hundreds of billions of dollars. Now, Alphabet is interesting. It does have a buyback program, but it has resisted issuing a dividend for years. And this is classic Silicon Valley. Put the profits back into moonshot ventures like self-driving cars or internet balloons. But what has been amazing, guys, about this year of efficiency among the mega caps is that they have shown investors that they can do both. They can innovate in areas like generative AI and spatial computing, and they can also return capital. They just needed a little more discipline and focus. And it feels like Google has got that message. And they've been taking a harder look at its other bets, Moonshot unit and its workforce, all while growing its cash reserves and improving margins. So investors, they might start wondering if a dividend is next. And maybe the biggest reason now is that Meta's doing it. All right, Deirdre, thank you very much. I mean, and to Deirdre's point on the walking and chewing gum, I think it's a really good spot for investors in these stocks where not just are they managing the return of cash, but they're managing OPEX and headcount lower at the same time where they are increasing capital expenditures around AI. And that feels like is something that investors are really excited about. And the other takeaway, I think, is that investors want growth. And, and clearly growth around AI. If you look at half of the gains of the S&P in January, that was the Magnificent Seven. I think it was technically 45%, according to Bank of America this morning. When your head count is down 22% in a year and you up your CapEx budget exactly. by $2 billion, others are gonna try to do something similar, maybe not by that much, but they'll try. That's the dynamic at Meta. It happened at Amazon too, at Google as well. And that's you know something investors are excited about. Yeah. Happy, have a good weekend.